Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. There are a few mentors that you have in training that really push you, that force you to become better both technically and non-technically. Dr. Janice Basica is an endocrine surgeon at the University of Calgary and has mentored many general surgery residents and fellows. In this episode, we have a wide-ranging discussion with Dr. Pasika on issues ranging from gender equity to surgical education and training to Dr. Pasika's rules on conferences. Dr. Pasika, thank you so much for joining us on Cold Steel today. We really value your time and uh, your contributions to the podcast, and, and it really means a lot to, to both of us personally. Dr. Pasika, we wanted to start off by finding a little bit more about where you grew up. And, and I was thinking back to this as, as now your, your former trainee. I realize I have never actually gotten the chance to, to sit down with you and ask you about where you grew up and, and how you ended up in medicine and in surgery in particular. So I was hoping you could uh, share that with the listeners on, on the podcast. Well, thanks very much, Amir and, and Chad, for um, for inviting me and, and thank you that I would uh, be um, uh, a great addition to the wonderful people that you've had on your podcasts uh, to date. Um, so I actually um, was born in uh, Sudbury in northern Ontario and uh, grew up uh, in suburbia Toronto. Um, and, you know, my family there, my dad was a mining engineer, my mother was a homemaker. And there was nobody in any of my family that were in medicine. Um, so you can imagine when I just announced at dinner one day that I decided I wanted to go into medicine at, in grade eight, um, that uh, they didn't quite know what to do with this, uh, this girl. So I don't really know what it was that I focused on medicine. Um, I think it was my love of the science and uh and just uh, a need to to care for people, and um, and then I set my sights on that, and basically um, went to university. I went to uh, the University of Western Ontario, and um, decided that I was um, work hard to try to get into medical school, and I got in. Uh, after my second year. So I never completed a degree before I started uh, medicine. And um, uh, yeah, it, it, it was, in some ways, to me, I see it, it must have been a calling because I never looked back. And I couldn't today imagine doing anything else as a career or profession. It's just such a, just such a, an honor and a privilege to be able to care for patients. It's interesting that you say that, uh, Dr. Pasika, because we recently had uh, Dr. Grace Rizicki on the podcast, um, and it's she had a very similar story that she just was in her biology class and um, just just suddenly knew that she wanted to be a physician, and and, that, and like she said, she like you said, 
very similar words. Like she just felt this calling. And I'm fascinated by this this moment in people's lives where they just have this clarity of vision. Is, was there a moment where you sort of knew that this was going to happen? Or was there an experience that that made you feel that this was your calling? Or did you just sort of gradually feel like, um, you know, this is what you wanted to do? Yeah, I wish I, I wish I could say that there was this, you know, aha moment. And, you know, when you interview, uh, you know, the uh, medical students and the PGYs, uh, uh, ones when they sort of are applying, um, they give you these, you know, incredible stories of uh, courage and things that happened in their life that set them on a thing for medicine. And to be honest, uh, I can't think of an aha moment. I just remember sitting at the dinner table and announcing that that's where I was, what I was going to do. Um, and uh, um yeah, it wasn't it wasn't anything that I was being exposed to. Um, Dr. Basika, you know, you have gone on to become one of the preeminent leaders in endocrine surgery, certainly in Canada for sure, if not in North America. What attracted you to um, surgery in general, and then in particular endocrine surgery? And, and you know. Um, I remember you what you said about uh, colorectal surgery uh, being op- an operation <laughs> along the, the dotted lines. Um, but so, how is endocrine <laughs> surgery different than that? And uh, yeah, and, and what yeah. what what made you want to do endocrine surgery? Yeah, well, you know, there was an aha moment for going into surgery. I mean, once I got into to medicine, I loved everything about it, and in my between my first and second year, there was uh, an advertisement for a medical student to go up to Fort Francis, which is um, north of Lake Superior, um, to um, uh, work as a medical student in their uh, clinics up there. And I, they, I'm sure that the whole plan was to try to entice medical students coming up to rural communities to go into um, Fam- to help entice them to go into family medicine. Um, Fort Francis is also close to Coetico National Park, which is just one of the best places to go canoeing if you're a canoeist. And so um, I immediately applied and got the job. So I went up there and um, the mornings I spent with a, uh, a surgeon called Jazz Spencer and his wife was the GP anesthetist and he did surgical lists in the morning. And then in the afternoon, I was to go to the uh, family medicine clinic. And it became very clear as soon as I was in the operating room, that this is where I wanted to be. And um, it was hard to get me to go to the afternoon uh, family medicine clinic. So that was the moment I decided on surgery. Endocrine surgery came around from uh, the point of view of my love for physiology and my love for um, endocrine and endocrine and endocrinopathies just fascinated me. And while doing general surgery at the time, I found it interesting and odd that, um, you know, uh, we would do um, resections on Crohn's disease and, and ulcerative colitis. And as surgeons, we would make the decision as to 
what to take out and what to do and how to anastomose and all of those things. The gastroenterologists helped us with the diagnosis, but they didn't dictate the surgery. And yet endocrine surgery, when I was training, it was the endocrinologists that were dictating, just take out half the thyroid. We want you to uh, take out this adrenal gland. And there wasn't a lot of thought as, you know, the workup and, and that. And I really got into the workup and said, you know, this is what I want to do. Um, and at that time in Canada, at least, and certainly in Calgary, there really wasn't endocrine sur uh, surgeons. So um, that story was, you know, almost the same way I announced to my parents. I just decided that's what I wanted to do. And there was a, uh, a senior surgeon here named Hugh Galley, um, who was just, uh, um, just a delightful gentleman. And when I told him that that's what I wanted to do, he um, recalled reading the presidential address of Ed Ployan for the American Association of Endocrine Surgery on training endocrine surgeons for the future. And that, that address just happened to be a couple of months before I talked to Hugh. And he said, oh, I, I think I, I'm going to give you something. And he gave me that journal. I still have it. And basically gave me the advice that that's what you want to do. These are the people you got to go find. And that's what I did. It's, it's so amazing how so many of us, I think, have that, that epiphany moment um, as soon as you walk into an operating room. I think, you, and we see it sort of every day, right? We, yeah. we either see someone lo love it or somebody who just can't wait to get out of there. They're, they're yeah. counting the seconds. There's, there's no doubt. Dr. Psyga, you and I have had a lot of conversations over many years about the importance or the role um, and the variable role, to be honest, of surgical conferences. And sometimes we talk about meetings in the context of their content. Sometimes we talk about the administrative or committee point of view, um, but really certainly the, the social aspect of things is something that, that you taught me a lot about and the importance of that. I was wondering if you could share with our listeners some of the, the framework or the rules that, that you look at with, with regard to conferences, because I, I, I think they're, they're particularly relevant and they're easy to forget if you're trying to move up in these societies or, or, or give a whole bunch of talks. And the, the second question really I have for you is this all seems to be changing in the here and now so very much. And you and I had also talked a little bit about in the, the age of COVID and the shift of video conferencing. What, what do you think that means going forward and how do you think that'll change what has been a very traditional model for many decades? Yeah, that, that's a, a good question. So I, I'll answer the sort of the, the first on my, um, for those that haven't heard my spiel on, on surgical conferences. And, you know, there's different philosophies that mentors will tell junior attendings and, and attendings on what to do about a conference uh, of joining different societies. And mine was that I think you what you need to do is define your peer group, um, the group that you identify most with. So for me, it was the endocrine surgeons, and it was both at the uh, North American, so the American Association, but also on an international level. So those were meetings that you wanted to present your work. You wanted to, um, you know, illustrate that you were advancing the science of this um, subspecialty or specialty. And you use those meetings also to um, find collaborators um, 
and uh, so it's your peer group that you do you would focus on. Other meetings you may have to or you may go to are ones in which are politically very important for you to go to, to be supportive, such as the Surgical Forum, such as the American College, and, and platforms like that. I think meetings and societies, the biggest thing you get out of them uh, beyond demonstrating um, to your peer group is the networking and being able to meet like-minded people, but also the true giants and the leaders and, and then evolving and, and uh, working up in the organization, if that's what you like to do, um, to um, become part of and forming that organization. And the third thing that you, know, you get out of it is um, this, just this incredible group of, of friends that are all over the world that you um, start to develop relationships with. And then the meetings uh, that I like to go to and why I probably did a lot of international meetings was you visit very interesting and different places you get to experience different cultures. And I think what Chad's alluding to is my rule of every conference that I go to, um, I, have to I have to attend the conference. I, you know, I'm not going there just to sign up on the first day. So I attend the conference, but at some point I have to uh, run or walk this, the, the city. I have to visit a museum or an art gallery. I have to uh, visit um, a bookstore and um, take on some sort of social event. Um, and I've been very dogmatic about that. And I even go a day early or stay a, a day later to make sure that I do all of those things. And it's allowed me to see parts of the world and see things that I never would have experienced. I find it it would be sad to just fly in, go to the meeting and then fly out and realize that there was a Van Gogh exhibit at the, you know, the museum and you'll never get an opportunity to see it again. Um, so then you go COVID and then they want to do this all on video. Well, I'm not sure how that's going to work because all of those things that I enjoy about being a member of an organization and going to conferences, the networking, the friends, the relationship, the culture and visiting places is not gonna happen the same way over the video. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, it really is. I mean, there's so many different factors at play. I think, you know, it, it's interesting to see the, virtual meetings, conferences that have already happened, there's certainly a widespread, and I'm sure you've heard it too, description of, of real fatigue trying to sit and watch your computer on Zoom or whatever platform the individual conference is using for more than a couple hours at a time. I also wonder a little bit how how the, the millennial outlook uh, on the trainee side, my anecdotal observation for a few years has been there's somewhat of a less less commitment to this traditional model of flying everywhere and spending money mm -hmm. and taking time off work. So I do wonder, you know, how all of these factors will converge and what it'll look like at the other end. 
Yeah, I think you're right, Chad. I, I think, you know, you can look at the upside that it is going to be less travel and any travel, um, you know, to a conference is is time away from family, friends, and also your office. So it's, it, it is stressful. So it may increase the attendance and the CME piece of it. Um, but, you know, the personal connection and, you know, I remember so distinctly, you know, my mentor, Norm Thompson, bringing me up and introducing me to Orlo Clark or Hearden mm-hmm. and, and just sort of, you know, they shook my hand. And then the next time they saw me, they called me by my first name. It was, yeah. it was a thrill. It was a thrill. Yeah, um, exactly. You're not going to get that on a Zoom, I don't think. But, you know, um, it is our new reality and we're going to have to somewhat embrace it. But. I, I just don't know what the the replacement for the other things that I mentioned are going to be. I don't know what that is. Dr. Pazika, uh, one of the things uh, that you've already alluded to is the fact that you like to actually go to international events and you've been active um, in national and international organizations and uh, have gone all over the world uh, trying to help educate uh, in particular, you've done a number of, of workshops and educational sessions in China. What has that experience been like? Um, and what are the ch- how has that enriched your practice? And, and what has that made you learn uh, about uh, endocrine surgery as a whole? You mean China in particular or just the... Well, I, I feel like I, I particularly remember you, you when I was on service, you going to China and, and teaching these yeah. huge, huge seminars <laughs> to all these people. Yeah. about how to do, you know, whatever the topic was in endocrine surgery, whether it was ultrasound or, or the actual technical aspects of, of doing the surgery. And, and I remember listening to that and just admiring kind of the, the challenges that posed of, of going to a completely different country uh, where the languages are different, but yet you were super excited about that and, and clearly you were passionate about that. And so I, I chose China, but obviously you do, you've done that in many, many venues. And so I'm just curious what your, what that experience has been like for you. Yeah, it's been, it's been a real enriching experience for me on a personal as well as a professional uh, level. Um, it's, uh, it, 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 it really is, um, I'm, I'm fascinated by the different cultures and, uh, and if you take the time to sort of observe and and try to learn a little bit about the diversity in this entire world and how these different cultures all come together, we're all doing the same thing, taking care of patients um, in our area or whatever. I found that to be quite fascinating. I I also then felt it, you know, and, and recognized. It was important to get out of my comfort zone every so often to really sort of, um, you know, help me grow as an individual and to to sort of experience um, uh, life in a different way and see how other people who seem incredibly happy with very little, um, you know, as far as physical um, possessions and that, and yet they seemed happier than most of the people that I knew back in North America. And, and just trying to understand that and understand what, you know, happiness is from a, your, you know, from your heart and your soul. 
I also found that when I traveled internationally, that um, in these in very a lot of these countries, they were actually doing cutting edge stuff that hadn't quite made it to North America, um, and um, they were doing it. And I was bringing back knowledge that hadn't made mainstream uh, North uh, academic medicine. I mean, a good example is, you know, taking the thyroid out through the mouth with no incisions on the neck. I mean, this was, you know, developed in uh, Malaysia and, you know, within a couple of months they had done 50 cases and then were presenting it. And now that's considered one of the techniques, but it was really cool to sort of see it um, at the at the onset um, uh, because of the different cultures, the different uh, ways that they can practice medicine, they were able to do something like that without having to go through the rigors of what we do here in North America, you know, new technology and new things. So it was it's been really quite fun and enriching. Yeah, it's, a, it's amazing how these international experiences by yourself and ourselves and just all of us in general, including some of our guests, really impact how we practice when we come back, uh, certainly mentally and sometimes physically as well. It's, it's quite neat. Um, Dr. Pasika, you know, you're certainly not defined by this, of course, and you certainly don't, don't brag about it, but I'm going to brag a little bit for you for our listeners. And I'm, I'm curious what your, what your thoughts um, coming out of out of my comments will, will will be in regard to gender equality in particular. And for those of us that know you, I mean, you were, I believe, certainly the first Canadian. And I think it was the second woman to be president of the American Association of the Endocrine Surgeons about ten years ago. You were also the section head of general surgery in Calgary, which, just based on structure, I would I would venture, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is certainly going to be the largest general surgery cohesive group in the in the country um you did a lot of that not only as a woman but also relatively early so to speak uh in the in the arc of of your career i'm curious how not only those accomplishments but maybe more importantly how um you know gender equality has really come to the forefront so strongly in the past one to three years uh, how you view you view that how you apply that to to surgery. Um, you know, one of my other comments, I guess, would be that I, I noticed this year looking at our University of Calgary poster that we finally have uh, an equal number of women trainees to men trainees. And I, I think that's that's just superb. But how, how do you view the, the way the world is, is working right now and the discussion that surrounds that concept? Oh, wow. That's... Um... Yeah, that's a, a big topic uh, and interesting one because it's, we you know, gender equality. Uh, obviously, I was one of the visible minorities when I was uh, starting out my career. Uh, but you can look around at the uh, structure of all the residency programs and departments. There's a lot of other visible minorities um, that aren't necessarily being represented at the leadership level. So I, I think the gender equality is, is, is one aspect of a conversation that's worth discussing. But when I look at it, I would say it's, it's all diversity. It's all underrepresented uh, 
visible minorities that we should be putting in the same kind of grouping in some ways. From a purely gender perspective, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't, I don't know how to say this, but I, I wasn't, I never thought that being a woman was going to um, take away my ability to achieve my goals. Um, I knew I was standing, you know, on the shoulders of the, of the pioneers that really did break that barrier of, of being women in surgery, you know, the Francis Conley's, Robin McLeod, uh, the Pat Newman's and, and people that really, you know, um, started that movement. So then when I applied as a resident to get into a residency, um, it wasn't such a foreign concept. So I think they accepted me on my merit. But, you know, the difference at that time was that um, I wasn't, not everybody um, in the division um, really thought I should be there, but they were, they could tell me to my face, they didn't think I should be there, that they they didn't hmm. believe women should be in surgery, that I was taking up a spot. And it, I didn't have any repercussions and they didn't, they didn't see it as being um, so politically incorrect and being hauled up into somebody's office saying you can't say those things. They could they could voice their opinions in in public, um, and so I at least knew where what the landscape was, um, and I knew I wasn't equally accepted across all boards. Then I think uh, when I was sort of you know, mid-career, I recognized that it's politically incorrect to truly state your bias. or um, And so it went underground, and yet it was still very much uh, yes. there. And that's when it scared me more, because then you didn't know who was on your side, who wasn't. Right. And, and I think that you could look at this, you know, the, what's happening right now with Black Lives Matter. And, you know, if you read about the, the 60s and the civil rights, you know, I grew up thinking, okay, well, they've sorted that one out that, you know, all lives matter and um, there isn't any racial discrimination. And yet, you know, you know, all of a sudden, it clearly is still there. There's this unconscious bias that we all have for various reasons. And because it's not being talked about and openly spoken about, it's a little more frightening to me. So maybe having a little bit more of a dialogue and people thinking about it and bringing it back to the forefront will at least help things. Um, but uh, yeah, Chad, I don't know what, what, what you're, where, what your what the question was. You got me on that. No, I think that's, that's well, that, yeah, that's clearly very, very well said. Um, you know, I, I think it's about time and, and uh, I think you're right. I mean, all this discussion and all this interaction, whether it's been professional or unprofessional lumped together, I think is probably helpful because it does put the the issue of equality across the board on the forefront of everyone's mind. And I, I think all of us should be appreciative of that. 
Yeah. And you know what I would like to see is just more of an embracing of diversity. I mean, we don't, we, that's just it. We don't want uh, a bunch of people to then all form into the, the, the same model of, uh, you know, what the Department of Surgery has always been. What we want is a whole bunch of diversity around the table that are doing it very differently because of their culture, their upbringing, their race, their gender, mm. their whatever. And, and I think that yeah. is what, that's what we need to be more accepting of that. It's okay to have to um, accept somebody's going to do something completely uh, or not completely, but do it a little bit differently because of they bring diversity to the table, but be accepting of that. And yeah, it, it, absolutely. And, and exactly, you know, we, you and I have talked about this before and I've talked about it uh, on both on the podcast as well as with other guests privately and, you know, specifically, there's no question that strength comes from diversity and we can be social about it or we can actually be mathematical about it. And Scott Page's work has shown that now in two separate mm. books that there's a, a, an actual finite descriptive formula, mathematical formula for productivity and efficiency out of diversity oh, that, wow. is that is improved. And it's, it's remarkable. It's, it's, you know, having seen him speak one time at our, at a, as sort of the presidential speaker, HPBA, I want to say four or five years ago, it was the most remarkable talk I, I've ever seen. And it, it really set off lights, I think, across a thousand HPB surgeons at that meeting. Um, there's no question that that diversity should always win biologically and psychologically. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Pasika, I wanted to, uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to just mention this story because I think it's one of the, the neat stories that, that you've told me about what it's been like, just just fundamentally what it's sometimes like to be a female trainee that, that perhaps we just don't understand if, if, you're, if you're not a female trainee. You tell the story about coming back and starting as a staff surgeon at the foothills and not having any scrubs that actually fit you. Um, and it wasn't until Dr. Kwan, Malin Kwan, who's one of the uh, the breast surgeons at at uh, in Calgary, um, until she came and kind of insisted that they bring um, scrub sizes that are small, you know, that were small and and that fit fit appropriately, that you actually got uh, scrubs that that fit you that weren't hanging off you. Um, yeah. <laughs> and you know, I think this story is important because uh, you know, on the one hand, you're saying that you know you, you never felt like. Um, that you were discriminated against or that or or at least if you were discriminated it was kind of open and to your face but you know underneath all of this you did have to uh, overcome many of these kind of unseen subtle barriers um, that male trainees just didn't have to face and and I'm curious what you tell female trainees I know you you've been active in in having a group with the female surgical residents, um, the female general surgery residents in Calgary. And I'm curious what you tell them and, and what advice you have for them. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, it is important that they recognize that um, there's going to be things that are going to be different. And one of the ones that I think all female surgeons will talk about is the relationship with the nurses when you know you're a junior resident and you show up on the on the ward and that that can you know women don't play well together until they know each other well enough um and so it's important um and i tell them to you know it's not don't 
it's, you're not there to pick a fight. You're there doing the same job. But what you have to do is to prove to them that you are capable of this. And don't worry how they treat your male counterparts. Worry about your own integrity and be true to yourself. It doesn't mean you have to then um, start taking on male qualities to be able to get the job done. Do it in your way. But if you show them that you can take care of patients, that you will um, respond to their, their needs and, um, and treat them as, as a part of the team, um, it may just take a little bit while, but then they'll respect you and then you, they will be your allies. So, you know, I think a lot of, uh, there's a lot of sort of angst initially just trying to um, make sure that um, people recognize, no, I'm not the nurse, I'm the doctor, or I'm, I'm not the housekeeping staff, because it's just what happens initially, um, you know, even patients, but not to react to it, but to em embrace it and prove that you're just as capable as the next. I think, you know, that, that demonstrates, uh, again, how much you care about uh, resident education. I think any of your, your trainees, current and former, <laughs> will, will talk about having, having trained under you and the things <laughs> that they've learned. Uh, I know I certainly, certainly have learned a ton from coming on your service. I mean, I came on, I think, at the beginning of my fifth year, the end of my fourth year onto your service. And I thought I knew how to do things like, you know, tie, tie a, uh, tie a knot around an instrument. Uh, and, and spending a, you know, a few weeks with you was enough to just realize that like your dedication to the basics and, and really getting those things right. Um, not only just technically, but also conceptually, like I, I still remember the little chalk talks you would give on the, on the drapes, uh, while we were waiting for, for, uh, you know, the pathologists to come back and tell us if we had the, the parathyroid. I'm curious about what you think, you know, I, th I think I understand what makes you a good, great teacher, but what do you think are the characteristics of, of great teachers? And in particular, I'm very curious as what your approach is to the, the trainee that you don't think is interested and, and how do you approach that situation? Oh, well, okay. Well, um, first of all, Amir, I don't need a pathologist to tell me that I have the parathyroid adenoma. I just want to make sure that gets on the podcast. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I, would never I was, I would I was never waiting for that. That. <laughs> that. So, so I'm sorry. So, well, first of all, I, 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 you know, a great teacher. I don't, I don't know if I'm a great teacher. I, I, I do my best to teach, and I, and I, I, I do try. Um, and I, I've sort of. Um, there was a time that um, I wasn't such a great teacher, and I was not I was not connecting with um, the uh, trainees, um, and it um, it took um, me to sort of step back, um, and uh, I took on a, a coach, um, uh, Lara Cook, who is a an educator here and uh and she's a neurologist um took my challenge on me as a challenge and really because i was baffled by why i wasn't being perceived as teaching all i was trying to do was to 
teach and it wasn't coming off correctly. And I know I'm intense. Um, and so she really, as a coach and, and uh, having that educational background, taught me or showed me wh- wh- how I was teaching and what I was teaching. I was teaching at a different level than this new generation of medical students were um, used to. And that's what sort of floored them. Um, I wasn't asking for didactic regurgitation from a textbook, I was asking questions, as you know, that are a little off tangent, outside the box, but it gave me the ability to see where you were thinking. And once I started to understand a little bit about what my style was, I wasn't about to change that, but I recognized that I had to then spend more time trying to understand when I ask a question, hear what the answer is coming back to me, and then trying to figure out how I can work them through my algorithm or the way that they need to start thinking about this disease or whatever it is um, by enticing different questions because they would have the knowledge. They just haven't put it together in a, in a, in a box or on an algorithm. And, and that's been, you know, that's been a great learning process and it, and it really has to, gets my brain thinking. So when I ask you a question and I get some sort of answer, I have to figure out, well, well that's not even close, but where is that coming from and, and sort of start working from there. And um, so I think I've, I've improved, I think I'm a better teacher from that perspective. And I think I challenge people and, um, so how do I reach the trainee that's not interested in learning? I, I think I don't. Um, if, if they are too not interested or can't answer a question and say, well, I just don't know, and they, they give up, then I can't delve and use my, my brain or knowledge to try to figure out how to get them back on track and try to show them that they actually do know. They just haven't put the two pieces a and B and C together. Um, and so if they give up, I, I give up. And yeah, I'll be honest, I, I know that that's what I do. I, I just have to comment that uh, it's amazing that you took it so seriously um, about resident education that you would actually get a coach to help you get better. And I, I think that just shows um, just the level of dedication that you had to the craft, but also the insight that you had that that you just felt like things weren't connecting the way that you wanted to and 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 that's just amazing to me um you know i think one of the challenges that you in particular face when when you have general surgery trainees is that um you know increasingly there are fewer and fewer general surgeons who are uh, doing thyroid and parathyroid uh, in particular um and you know, some of us may never do that probably ever again in, in, in their career, um, which is which is kind of sad for, for me to think about. But but I'm curious how you how you navigate that dilemma of, of having someone that you want to get um, a lot out of the rotation and a lot of the out of the experience, but may never actually do that uh, operation again and probably doesn't have much experience doing it. How do you walk that line? Especially, you know, with the, the third factor of the context in which we live in, which is that, you know, uh, trainees just aren't getting the volume that they used to. Yeah. yeah. Um, so 
with you're absolutely right. So I think a lot of things in general surgery are becoming so subspecialized um, that there are going to be operations that um, uh, people will go into, especially that they they won't do, particularly if they um, subspecialize in um, in in a in a remote a different completely different area. But that doesn't mean that the the techniques and uh, you know how to how to handle the tissues in the in the neck um, aren't going to translate into being able to do that in another part of the abdomen or um, uh, with breast surgery and all of those things. So I see it as there are trainees that I'm teaching the surgical techniques. Um, to be able to apply to wherever they are. Um, I think that uh, it's your other part of the question was the, um, how do we optimize this time um, in this environment? That, this is, this is a, a real challenge because what's happening is more and more fellowships and more and more people coming and wanting to focus and be and do let's say endocrine surgery and obviously you want to get them to master that part of it and that could be at the detriment of the resident so you try to involve them in different parts of the cases and get eventually the fellows to also be part of the teaching but to when they're getting into the OR less and less, um, yeah, and, and, and I guess as surgeons, and Chad can attest to this, we're under this incredible pressure of being more and more efficient. It's, I, I, I see it's going to get even harder and harder, and I don't have a good answer. Yeah, I'm not sure there is a good answer yet, but I think you're right. Um, maybe in getting close to closing, Dr. Pasico, I wanted to, to touch on a couple of fun things. Uh, the first okay. is you and I have talked about the HBO uh, series called Chernobyl that outlines oh, yeah. uh, th those events uh, a couple of times. And certainly the, the impact or the, the interaction with ionizing radiation, medicine, and surgery, and diagnostic tests is, is strong. And I think it's an interest of both yours and mine. And although I, I wouldn't say when I think of radiation, I think of you, but certainly when I think of radiation, I, I, I do think of the thyroid. And I was wondering if, if you could just talk a little bit about, um, you know, almost from a didactic point of view about radiation and thyroid cancer and, and where that all sits. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, ra radiation has been shown to be one of the risk factors for developing uh, thyroid cancer. And, and it's, it's just a fascinating story on how it was sort of first uh, discovered. And it was a, a group of epidemiologists at the University of Chicago that sort of put the piece together when they started seeing uh, in the cancer center a high number of patients that were in their uh, 20s and 30s that had uh, thyroid cancer, this sort of big blip. And they noticed that they were all upper middle class white Americans and not the major population of Chicago, which was African American. 
And they then started to try to figure out what the difference was. And what the difference was, was um, access to healthcare. And these uh, young adults, when they were children, their parents had the ability to get them the best healthcare um, at that time. And so in the 50s, they were getting their thymuses radiated, they were getting radiation, low dose radiation for acne, for mastoiditis. And we created this problem, but in uh, a group that were thinking they were getting the best healthcare. And that then really sort of allowed us to then understand that, you know, ionized radiation was a risk factor to thyroid cancer. And then the next sort of many other pieces, including the atomic bomb and, but the other um, and the uh, Marshall Islands and the nuclear testing have sort of reiterated that. But it was the Chernobyl incident that um, was a fascinating story as well. And that, you know, it happened in what, 1986. Mm -hmm. And it, the, they started reporting that they had a, this high incidence of childhood cancer um, only three years out and everybody in the Western worlds were saying, well, that's not from radiation because it's, it's got a 20 year lag period, um, three years, it can't be from the radiation. And these guys persisted and kept showing it. And sure enough, um, that type of radiation, because it was short acting isotopes on young kids, mm -hmm. it was creating thyroid cancer at a much rapid growth. So it is fascinating. And I think uh, the story on the number of CT scans and what we, we do, maybe, you know, 20 years from now, we will rethink all of that as well, Chad. Yeah, it's, a, it's so interesting how the technology piece also plays into it now. You know, there, there's a significant biologic rationale, of course, as you do know, that, that perhaps that model, the Chernobyl model, doesn't really reflect what we do with CT scans independent of their decreasing radiation dose sort of one big mm -hmm. blast versus, you know, multiple uh, lower dose exposures may not be equivalent from a DNA, DNA repair point of view and, and so on. So it's, it's certainly really quite fascinating. The second last thing we wanted to ask you is about your love for collegiate basketball. I think, uh, oh. I think oh. most of us that, that know yet know it's a, <laughs> a, huge, a huge passion. So March Madness. Yeah, we're exactly. <laughs> Exactly. We're, we're in particular curious as to, as to, you know, how that came about, why Big Blue? And I, I'm really interested to know what, what you think about essentially the, the legal world in the U.S. now driving uh, more pay for those collegiate athletes who, you know, as you know, uh, again, uh, from, a, from a gender equality point of view is unfortunate, but really it's, it's these large collegiate football programs and men's basketball programs that really drive the financials for the entire athletic program in most universities that are of the right size. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, this is going to be two years in a row. I'm going to, I'm going through withdrawal. There will be no tournament this year as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah. That's two March madnesses that um, I, I, I'm, it's going to be tough. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, since I was um, 10 years old, I've been an NCAA basketball fan. And um, 
you know, initially uh, Marquette because of uh, Al McGuire was a great coach and I love the way he coached it. And I played, then I played basketball and in high school ah. and university. And then, um, and then I was a, um, a Blue Devils fan because of Coach K. But that stopped um, on the first day I was in the operating room with Norm Thompson. And we were, op- we were operating across the table and, uh, you know, just starting to get to know each other. And he was my, you know, uh, I had arrived at Michigan. And we said, he said, oh, yes, you're a basketball player and you like basketball. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm a Blue Devils fan. And the room just stopped. And he um, put down the phone <laughs> and he looked at me and he says, that either changes today or don't show up tomorrow. Wow. And uh, with, a, with a twinkle in his eye, because he, he, he was a, just a, a true gentleman. But yeah. um, the next day, go blue. Absolutely. And go blue ever since. <laughs> well, you're, uh, as usual, you're a much better person than I, because having growing up, grown up in Edmonton and now living, living in Calgary for the better part of close to 20 years now, I still cannot convert to a Flames fan. I am curious what your thoughts are about the, the increased pay for NCAA athletes. An NCAA, uh, you know, um, athlete, you're there to go to university and to um, be a varsity athlete and to do both yeah. well. And, and, you know, that's why, you know, if I'm looking at a resume of a, a resident fellow or whatever, if they were a varsity athlete, right away, they, they're, they're up on, on my list because I know they can multitask. I know they can juggle many things. They have discipline. They've obviously have followed two passions in their lives if, and hopefully more of that type of thing. So mm-hmm. I see NCAA, if you want to, you know, make it your career, then try to play professionally. But if you're at university, I want you to go to university and get an education. Yeah, it's 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 true. You know, it's it's such an interesting and complex topic. My my dad um, was a was a dual athlete uh, at the University of Minnesota. He was a quarterback and he also played hockey. And then he went on to a oh, professional yeah. professional hockey career with with the Boston Bruins for a little bit, as you know. Um, and it, it's interesting to listen to him in the years that he was in that university. He didn't write a single exam and he didn't go to class because he didn't need to. His job mm. was to play was to play athletics. And then, of course, when when the pro hockey career um, died relatively quickly because of injury, he had no education. He really had no, yeah, yeah no no way to make a, a real income. And my mother at that time was pregnant with me, and all of a sudden it was a bit of a crisis. And, you know, to his credit, he he went. Uh, back to university he became an accountant and he did really well but when he talks about the guys that that he grew up with uh, in that era doing those same sports most of them did not have such a positive outcome at all so uh, uh, you know he certainly felt strongly with with my brother and I that you had to go to school and that, that was the goal and and uh, there was no negotiation about it whether you were playing university hockey or whether you weren't so I, I completely agree with you yeah, and, and I think from a you know for, in the women's you know there isn't a professional women's hand uh, you know uh, field hockey league that you're aspiring to. So most mm-hmm. of the women uh, sports um, are not there as a means of uh, getting a scout to pick them up professionally in the same way. Um, but 
uh, obviously, as you say, the football and the basketball, that's big money there. Um, and I, I don't like when I see good players leave early mm-hmm. and uh, to, to get, to, you know, to go into profession because then I go, well, you didn't get your degree. This has been such a delightful conversation and we're so glad that we could have you on the on the podcast i've learned so many things about you and uh and it just makes me really appreciate your dedication to the field of of surgery and and our dedication so thank you from all of us uh in closing (laughs) in closing i wanted to just ask you um if you could go back in time and this is a question we've asked all of our guests if you could go back in time and give, give yourself advice at the junior resident level, um, at the at the chief resident level, and at the attending surgeon level, what would those pieces of advice be? So at a junior resident level, um, yeah, it would it would be you know just keep your head down, work hard, and um, take care of your patients. Um, uh, and that will that will serve you well. As a chief resident, um, I probably would tell myself, lighten up with the medical students. Not everybody is as passionate about surgery or cares the way you do. So you, you don't have to ride them as hard as, as you did. Um, and um, and and spend time just making sure that your junior resident is doing okay because they'll make you look good if they can do their job. Um, For an attending, I guess I would say, you know, when you're starting out, you know, follow your passion, your, your passion in, in, in medicine and and in particularly surgery, but also follow your passions outside of medicine and don't give up hobbies um, that you're passionate about and say, well, I'll get back to those at another time. Always keep them as part of your ability to, um, you know, to step away from medicine and, and be, and be true to yourself. I would say above all, take care of yourself, both, uh, and your family and make sure that that becomes a priority and it can't be a priority maybe every day, but you got to keep, um, working on that. And I think the one thing that I didn't do early in my career, but I'm certainly um, doing more and more as I, as I quote mature, and that is I, I go out of my way to try to learn one thing every day from a patient. And it's, and I'm not talking always about uh, some new diagnosis or something in medicine, but to spend the time and get to, you know, find out a little bit about them and learn something new every day. Um, and you'll go a long way. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again. <laughs>